talk about trials and temptations. And many times these two words get lumped into the same thing, but I'm going to kind of try to show you through the book of James that trials and temptations, or testings is the word that the New King James uses, instead of trials, it calls it testings, that testings and temptations are two different things. And so um, in James chapter 1, so far we have just done an introduction. And if you remember from last week, we listed and we talked about James as being the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, and then after his conception and his birth, um, he lives his life, and then his mom and dad go, you know what, now that we're married, we want to have some children. And so if you believe in the perpetual virginity of uh, Mary, um, then you've been taught uh, a lie because she had more kids. And unless they were conceived of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus, um, <laughs> it's not possible that she stayed a virgin. And so the idea is that Jesus grew up with siblings. So if you've ever thought, well, of course, anybody could be perfect if they grew up in a household and it was just them and their parents. First of all, if you guys that are the only child, you know better. And second of all, uh, Jesus had siblings. So he was tempted in all ways as you were, and yet he never sinned. And I don't know about you guys, but I watch my kids, and it makes me remember growing up with a br younger brother. Uh, there's a lot of temptation there when you got a sibling that is agitating you, or you're agitating them. And so Jesus went through a lot, and, uh, and yet he came through this life without sinning. But I want to point out to you that as James wrote, he didn't say, James, half-brother of the Son of God. He wrote, and he said, James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and God the Father. He said, I'm a bondservant of Jesus. I am a willing slave. That's the word. We see the word servant and we think of somebody that is willing to serve. And no doubt that's what James was. But a bondservant or a bondslave was someone that would actually give their life to serving another person and would willingly say, hey, I'm going to give all my effort to serve you. I'm going to give all my life to pour into whatever you want me to do. And this is something that's totally opposite from our culture because in many ways we don't understand that term. But he decided he was going to be a slave of his half-brother. And so he writes from himself to this group called the 12 tribes. And in our translation here, it says the scattered. But I talked about last week how that means the diaspora, the dispersion. This was a group of Christian Jews that were dispersed from, essentially like one of those dandelions in your yard. You, the winds of persecution blew on the early church, and as it did, people were scattered everywhere that believed in Jesus because they could be killed. And so when they were scattered, Acts chapter 8 tells us that when they were scattered, everywhere they went, they took with them the message, the hope of the gospel, and they were not silent about it. Just because persecution caused them to move, it didn't cause them to shut up. It actually caused them to move with the message and to speak about it as they went, recognizing that God's in control. But that doesn't mean that they didn't struggle with fear. And so James writes to this group, and he writes to them about problems that they had in the early church, but he sees them not just as problems. As we look at problems, we go, well, this can't happen because we got X, Y, and Z are all problems. But I would submit to you, and I did last week, that 
problems are actually opportunities to grow. And we discussed the fact that the main problem with the church that James is writing to, this dispersion, so it's not a group of believers that all get together, but it's actually written to the dispersed believers around the world, the answer to their problem is that they need to grow up. You need to mature in your spiritual walk with Jesus, and that will fix the problems. Many times we have pills, we have um, ideologies, we have philosophies, we have, we'll talk to them more, we'll do this, we'll make more rules, but none of those things change us. They only give us more expectations that we're not able to meet. If, if I make more rules at work, if I make more rules in my home, guess what? It won't fix the problems. It'll actually increase the transgressions. The more rules there are, the more rules you can break. And whether you're trying to or not, you know, we can make more laws to get rid of drugs, but guess what? Drugs are still going to be there. And people that do drugs aren't following laws. They know it's illegal. They're doing it anyway. And so the reality is, spiritually speaking, problems can't be fixed by the will of man. We can't just try harder. We can't just work harder. We can't just make more rules. We can't just put burdens on ourselves that nobody can bear and then be better. That's not the gospel. The gospel doesn't say, here's some more rules, now you'll be perfect. What it says is, you can't meet God's standard. You can add to God's standard. You won't even meet your own standard. But Jesus met God's standard, his law, to the T. So believe on him for his sacrifice you'll be saved. And then as a result of that, you'll follow his ways. Your heart will be changed. And if you've ever fallen in love, we call it falling in love. But if you've ever met someone and you just like them so much, you want to spend your whole life with them. It's not your brain that makes the decisions, it's your heart. And as your heart is given over to that person, all of a sudden your friends start going, what are you doing? You start doing ridiculous things. When Jesse and Vika started dating, Jesse all of a sudden was driving to St. Jen County all the time. Sunday mornings, while you guys were still in bed, Jesse was getting up way before he wanted to, but he wanted to. He was driving to St. Jen, picking up Vika, driving all the way back here, and then they would come to church together. And so when they finally got married and they both live down here now, they're recognized they got a lot more free time. And he'll look back a couple of years later and go, how did we ever do all that? How did, how do... But because he loved her, he made decisions. Your heart always makes a convert of your mind. And as your heart falls more and more in love with Jesus, you'll do things that people around you will think are nuts. But you'll do it not because you have to. You'll do it because you love Jesus more than anything. And he will cause you to go links And when somebody asks you to do something and you want to do it for Jesus, you'll be able to go the extra mile, not because Jesus said go the extra mile, but because you just want to be pleasing to him. Not because he expects and you have to, but because you want to, because you love him. And so these problems are all opportunities for them to grow, not because they have to. I can't help but get that across. The book of James is not a list of things to do. We've already got plenty of things to do, and God knows that. He's not wanting to weigh us down with burdens that we won't be able to bear. What he's wanting to do is set us free and help us to now love and live for Jesus out of the love of Christ. Don't do anything 
because you have a love for Christ and you want to prove yourself to him. Do everything because you recognize how much you've already been loved. When you recognize how much you've been loved, doing something for the Lord that's hard becomes easy. It just does. It frees us. So their faith was being tested. These are problems that they had. They were being tempted to sin. They were believers, were practicing favoritism. They were treating some people better than the others because of what financially they had or because they had cool stuff or because they wanted to impress them. They wanted their influence. And so there was competition for power in the church. And many had a walk that didn't match with what they said they believed to other people. They were hypocrites. You ever hear somebody say that they don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites there? Well, there's part of me that says, come join us. You can come be a hypocrite with us. There's a other part of me that says they're right. We're saying that we believe one thing and we're doing another. I had a conversation with a gal the other day. She's talking about yoga. I won't get into that. I don't want to, it's not an issue with me. But what she said was that she had some of her younger family members that said, I want to try yoga. And she said, well, there's videos all over YouTube. But be careful, because in there, they're going to start talking about a higher power, usually in the yoga workout. And okay, all right. I'm like, where's this going? And uh, she said, but always recognize that God is the Lord. Now, this is a person that I can't tell as a Christian. She's on the fence. And sometimes she's like going for it, and she says all these things. But sometimes it's like, no, there's not a walk there at all. You're completely rejecting God's wisdom in your life practically. And so I didn't say anything, but man, everything in me was wanting to just go, what are you do? You're telling these kids that Jesus is Lord, and yet you're living with your boyfriend and living in sin. And so there's all these things, and it's like, what? okay, so the church should be different than that. Our lives should match what we say we believe. Again, not because we have to, but because we truly love Jesus, we're not living to please men, we're living to please him. And so we need to have walks, mature Christian walks, match what we say. So in verse 1 and 2, he says who he's writing to. He says who it's from. And then uh, in, in verse, actually in verse 2, he continues on and says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall, or that's a bad translation. The word that I would put in there is encounter or come across or find yourself in. Uh, we don't fall into trials. God's in control. It doesn't just drop us into things haphazardly. But the idea is when you fall into, when you encounter, when you come across, when you experience various trials, knowing that these, the testing of your faith will produce patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So he says count, count various trials that you experience, and we all do. Proverbs says that it rains on the just and on the unjust. So everyone is on a level playing field there. We will all experience trials. So he says the attitude of the Christian should be counting those trials as joy. Joy is just this experience of not happiness, which is circumstantial, but joy is this, this inward peace and this outflow of love from the Lord that is experienced when we recognize that everything that God allows into my life is for my good, that he cares for me, he loves me. He's not going to let anything into my life that's going to harm me, but everything that will ultimately create in me godly character. So why are we to 
embrace trials and, and count them as joy? Well, because they produce patience. You don't have to pray for patience. You can. But God's will is that we would be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And Galatians writes that against these things, there is no law. That this is the fruit of the Spirit flowing from our lives. So trials produce in us patience. And the example I have for you is Joseph, the son of Jacob. Joseph was the youngest brother. God revealed himself to Joseph in dreams, showed him he was going to be a leader over his 11 other brothers. And Joseph, being a young brother, said, hey, guess what God showed me? I'm going to be a leader over you. And they said, we don't like you. And, and so being the younger brother, being the favorite of his dad, his dad gave him a coat of many colors. You might have heard of this. He gave him this beautiful garment that showed that he was the favorite. He lavished on him this love. Now, part of him being the favorite is that he was the son of the wife that Jacob originally wanted, Rachel. Right? Rachel. Not Rebecca. I just read about Rebecca and Isaac this morning. So yeah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel. Okay, anyway. So my point is that as he was wearing this coat, he was kind of, you know, hey, look at me, I'm the favorite. And of course, there was jealousy. So one day, all the other brothers are out taking care of the herds. And as they're taking care of the herds, his dad says, why don't you go check out your brothers? So he's already, in a way, kind of a leader over them, whether they called it that or not. Make sure they're doing okay. So he goes out there, and they hate him. And dad's not in distance. And so they don't do what we would do, which is duct tape our younger sibling to the wall. And they start talking about killing him. That escalated quickly, right? They start talking about killing him. But lest we be too harsh, remember that Jesus talks about murder. And he said, okay, so you haven't killed anybody. But have you ever hated someone? Hatred is murder. It's just the beginning of it. It hasn't played out yet. But if you've committed hate in your heart, you've already murdered against. So that's God's standard. So, but what happens is they, one of the brothers speaks up and says, hey, wait a minute, let's not kill him. This, whew, let's not be too hasty. He says, instead, what we need to do um, is uh, maybe we just sell him. So they end up selling him to Ishmaelite Ishmaelite traders. So they sell him. That's nice, right? They didn't kill him. They just sold him. But they got to do something to, to kind of make everything okay with that. So they take his garment, they rip it up, and they kill a goat, and they put the goat's blood on it, and they take it back and go, he died. He got mauled. And, and of course, his dad is completely destroyed, as any father would about any child that he has. His, his son's been killed. And so Joseph, in the meantime, goes into obscurity. And uh, he's had these dreams from the Lord. So you could imagine, uh, okay, I'm going to be a leader over my brothers, but now they sold me. How's this going to play out, God? And you could imagine you might be kind of like, you ever God ever promised you something in his word? And then it seems like you're going the opposite direction. And you're like, but God, you said this, and but this is, so obviously um, either you're wrong or it's going to play out. 
And we have to do that battle in our hearts. Do I continue to trust God even though it looks like his promises failed me? Or do I trust him anyway? We walk by faith, not by sight. And so what happens in Genesis chapter 39, verse 1 through 6, it says, I should have been turning there a while ago, got all into the story. I love Genesis. It says there, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt in verse 1, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. So if something happens in your life and you feel like, I'm not where God wants me, remember that God is with you. God is, he was with Joseph. He allowed Joseph to be sold to slave traders, but he didn't leave him. He didn't forsake him. He's promised that he would always be with us, even until the end of the age. That's what the end of Matthew says. Go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations. But the promise is, in the the commandment, he leaves a promise, and lo, or behold, or pay attention, I will be with you even until the end of the age. And so Joseph, it says, was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him, and then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had put under his authority. So it was from the time that he made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. So not only was Joseph blessed, but everybody that came into contact with Joseph was blessed for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he made all that he had in Joseph's hand. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. So he was in charge of literally everything. Have you ever had a boss that actually was willing to, I don't care, just make it happen? I'm not, I, he didn't know anything that was going on financially, practically, or otherwise, except what he was eating on his table. That's trust. So it seems to me that Joseph conducted himself in a way that trusted the Lord. We're going to find out later that the reason that he was so trustworthy is because he wasn't doing things to please men. He was doing things recognizing that everything he did was in the sight of God. And I tell you what, that changes the way that you handle work things. That changes the way that you handle dealing with your parents. That changes the way that you interact with people you don't know. They can trust you because the Lord is the one that watches over you. And people can tell that about you if you're trustworthy. So Joseph is an example of counting it joy. When you experience various trials, knowing that these trials produce patience, recognizing that Joseph's calling, he's had to reveal to him in a dream, he's going to be a leader. But until he becomes a leader, God's going to put him through the Holy Spirit training program, and he's going to become a patient leader. He's going to become a wise leader. He's going to become a servant over little. And as he is faithful as a servant over little, as Jesus said, God's going to then make him as a servant or as a steward over many things. And he's going to become essentially the second leader in all of Egypt. Right now, he's kind of 
He, he, but he's going to climb the corporate ladder, as it were. But God's not going to put him in that place until he's ready, practically and spiritually. So God's preparing him to be a leader in, in Egypt. But Joseph has to trust him until then. So what I like is uh, what's said there in about verse 4. He says, Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And uh, Charles B. Williams said this, he says, But you must let your endurance, because patience is basically endurance, come to its perfect product. God's making in you a product. It's not something that's going to go on the shelf. It's something that's going to be used so that you may be fully developed and perfectly equipped. So if God's shown you, he's going to use you for something. First and foremost, he's going to take you through tactical, tactical training. He's going to take you through vocational training. He's going to take you through weight training so that when you get to the spot he wants to use you, you're going to be fully equipped for every good work. And so that's the purpose of the church did you know that? That Ephesians says that the purpose of the church of God is to equip the saints for every good work. And so why do we gather every week? First and foremost, we need to worship God. It, it gets our hearts right. But another reason that we gather is because God's using all of us to equip each other so that when we go outside those doors into our mission field, Whatever he's called you to do, whether it's at the school, whether it's in a nursing home, whether it's wherever you have influence, wherever you are interacting with people, he's preparing you daily and weekly as you spend time with him to be fully equipped and perfectly shaped to be effective in that area of life. It's not by coincidence. So in verse 5, he continues... And he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. So wisdom Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. We are in a day and age where knowledge is increasing. You can Google literally anything, and before you're even done typing, Google already knows what you're going to ask, right? And so we have storehouses of knowledge. We have things we can download to our computer that will teach us about anything. We got YouTube videos showing us how to change the transmission. We got YouTube videos showing us how to change every little thing on our cars. That's what I look up because stuff's breaking. You know, we've got uh, websites, DIY, where we can teach each other things that we learned through the school of hard knocks so that someone else can do it in five steps, right? But information in and of itself doesn't help us unless we know how to use it. Information can be dangerous unless we know how to use it. And so wisdom is the right use of knowledge. And so all true wisdom, whether you realize it or not, comes from God. And I say that because as I was looking through this passage, it brought to mind um, a, a psalm that I heard taught this week. Psalm 104, verse 24. Before we had all of our, uh, our scientific prowess, before we had all the Googles, 
we had Psalm 104, verse 24, which simply states, as the worshipers writing this song, he writes there in verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you made them all. So what are the works of the Lord? They're manifold, meaning they're many. Well, what it says there is that the earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great. There the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan. Many commentators believe that that's the whale, which you have made to play there. These all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. And what you give them, they gather in. You open your hand and they're filled with good. You hide your face and they are troubled. You take away their breath and they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit and they are created. And you renew the face of the earth. So he continues to go on in this song of worship, but he starts by saying, your works, Lord, are manifest. They're manifold. And in wisdom, you made them all. It doesn't take much to build a box, right? Think about it. A box is pretty simple. What's it made for? To hold stuff. But it also depends on what you're going to hold in the box, how you make the box. So if you're going to put batteries in a box, and I'm talking about car batteries, you're not going to build a box out of cardboard because you're going to lift that thing if you can, and what's going to happen? It's going to fall through. But if you build a box or a pallet... For batteries, there's wisdom in what you've made. Anybody can make a box, but not just anybody can make a box for anything. You need to know what it's carrying. That takes wisdom. Knowledge of how to make a box won't make it happen. But knowledge applied to the current situation is what it takes. That's wisdom. And so when God created, just think about it, our bodies. Now, cancer is one of the scariest words that I've ever heard because it's no respecter of persons. Any one of us could, could get it at any moment. And yet what I find interesting, and I don't know that I got this from somebody, but if I stole it from somebody, then I'm sorry. But the idea of cancer in our bodies scares me. But it's amazing to me that even without treatment, that our bodies can continue to go for a little while, even if they've got the worst cancer. It's not like an instantaneous, you got cancer and you're done that your body actually starts to try to fight it. There's antibodies and there's immune systems and there's stuff I know nothing about, frankly. But our bodies are amazing. They are frail, right? If you get a cut, it could kill you. Um, if, if you our bodies just can't take the abuse that some other things can. They're frail. You don't recognize that till you're sick or you get hit by a car. Or something takes place that creates this trauma. But your body, all of a sudden, starts to fight it. Why is that? I would submit to you, it's not evolution. It's the way God made us. He's put in there systems that respond to feelings and, and, and appetites and all these things that are just built into us because our Creator put them there. It's the best wiring harness you've ever heard of. And we can be born with defects in our wiring harness. We can be born with defects in the way our brains work. But they still work. If my car has a problem in the brain box, if it's got some wire that's crossed, 
the thing won't run at all. And yet we can limp. We can be born with a brain that doesn't cognitively understand things, and yet it will still take the food we put in it and break it down and turn it into other stuff and energy and everything else. Some systems will work apart from other systems, even though it won't work 100%. And maybe I'm just getting off on something that kind of excited me this morning as I was thinking about the wisdom of God and creation, but everything's like that. We have polluted and destroyed this world in so many ways, and yet, here we are, it still works. We've created smog and acid rain and all these things, and yet trees are still living. It's not evolution, it's the wisdom of our Creator. He knew what we would do with it, and He considered all the variables throughout all of time, and yet in His wisdom, He made them so they would still work. So I say that all to you to say that if you lack wisdom, what does he say? Does he say, Google it? Does he say, ask your friends? He says, ask of God, the source of all wisdom, and he will give to you liberally. For some of you, that's a bad word, liberal. But liberal means just pours it out, lavishes it, gives more than you need, more than you can even take in, just gives it. And he doesn't even despise when we ask. He actually delights in it. I love that. If you ask, there's a disclaimer. If you don't ask, you don't get. And later on in James, he's going to say, you strive and you worry and you're anxious. He says, you have not because you ask not. And then you get aggravated because you don't have it. And yet it's because you're asking for what he doesn't want to give you. You have not because you're asking for the wrong thing. And so if you ask, you have to fully trust in him to give it and then be sure to use it. He he goes on to say, those who ask for wisdom and yet doubt, they're going to be in trouble because they're going to find wisdom, but sometimes they're going to doubt that God gives it. And when they doubt that God gives it, they're going to look for it from other sources. And I say that to you because that's what Adam and Eve did. But you have to be unwavering and trust that God will supply it. We'll get to the Adam and Eve thing in here in a minute. But mature Christians trust in God in trials. That's the main point. Verse 9 through 11, he says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but let the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat Then it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in all his pursuits. So you might say, that's fine for you. If you want to trust God in trials and count it joy, but you don't have the circumstances. You don't live in the same life that I do. What he says here is that trials are kind of the great leveler. He says, let the one who has been lowly and humble and doesn't have much, let him glory and find joy in the fact that he will be exalted. Matthew chapter 5 says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And then it says something else that I can't remember at the moment, so I'm going to look it up. It was right there and then it left. 
He says, blessed are those, blessed are you when you're poor in spirit for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so you don't have it well here. Maybe you feel like you're a, a, a less than or a, a, a least of these. He says, be happy if you're poor in spirit because you will get a better grasp on the kingdom of heaven and you'll hope in it a lot more. You'll be less likely to trust in your riches. Humility brings forth exaltation. But then he says, okay, so maybe you're rich. How do you deal with trials or how do you look at life? And he says, uh, but the rich, let you glory in your humiliation. Let you triumph, let you glory, let you boast in when God humbles you and causes you no longer to trust in certain uncertain riches is what the Bible calls it. So he says, um, wherever you find yourself today, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, we have a tendency to blame circumstances for our joy or a lack of joy. But trials have a way of leveling the playing field. Uh, the poor can choose to glory in their rich spiritual inheritance that they have in Christ. You haven't received it yet, but you've been receiving the down payment, the Holy Spirit that gives us hope beyond this life. The guarantee of our eternity is the Holy Spirit deposited inside of us. But then the rich, likewise, can choose to glory in their rich inheritance that they have in Christ, knowing that all that they have can be taken from them in a moment. If you don't believe that that's possible, read the book of Job. Job was richer than most people we know. Job had it all. Big family, lots of livestock, um, you name it, he had it all. And yet, there was something missing in him. We find out that he wasn't tested because he was sinful. <laughs> if you read the whole story, though it's long and grueling, what you find out at the end is that Job was tested because God was trying to continue to develop his character. He gave him back all the stuff he lost, but the thing that he gained that money can't buy was godly character. And, and you just can't buy it. You can't go on Amazon and get in two days. You can't, you can't just download it from your friends. It, it has to come from the Lord. And God knows that many times we won't go looking for character. He's got to squeeze us a little bit and show us that we're lacking so that we'll look for it. And so... Trust in God in trials. That's what maturity comes from. So then he goes on in verse 12 and says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, tested and approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires, and he's enticed. Then when desire conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He's speaking to believers. He says, don't be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, meaning that God doesn't change. 
Good is still good in God's eyes, no matter what century you're in, no matter what the culture says. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So trials on the outside can actually become temptations from the inside. And what he says there is that trials and temptations are two totally different things. God will test us. Think about Abraham. He was given the son Isaac. And then he said, I want you to take that son, your only son, the son whom you love. He was being very specific. I want you to go sacrifice him. He was testing him. Did God want him to sin and kill his son? No, but he wanted him to see whether or not he actually truly loved God more than he loved the gift that God gave him. So Abraham was faithful. He showed up. He took his son up there, laid him on the altar, and the Lord provided a sacrifice instead. So, but as we go on, I want you to think about this. Let me read verse 12 again. He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. There's that endurance piece, that patience piece. For when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life with uh, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So my question for you about that verse is, what is he's promised the crown of life to who? He's promised it to those who do good stuff. He's promised it to those who, who have proved themselves to him? He says, no, I've promised this crown of life to those who love me. Again, that piece I talked about at the beginning. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's what Jesus said. He doesn't say, if you're perfect, you'll keep my commandments. He doesn't say, if you want to prove yourself to me, you'll keep my commandments. He says, he's saying, It's not a to-do list. He's saying what you'll find is that if your um, affection for me is above any other thing, then you will naturally keep my commandments. And in 1 John, he says, and my commandments are not a burden to you. They won't be a burden. It won't be a to-do list. It will be a response of gratitude, recognizing how much he loves us. So, He's promised life. But he says, let no one say when he's tempted, well, God tempted me. It was not my fault. God just let these things happen, and I sinned because of what God allowed. For God cannot be tempted by evil, he says, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one, look at this, is tempted when he's drawn away. If I ever text someone or call you because I haven't seen you at church in a while, it's not because I'm like, man, our numbers are down, and i am really got to get back to the association. They're, they want our numbers to be up on attendance. First of all, we don't have an association, and we don't keep attendance. It's because Satan likes to draw us away. He, he'll draw us away from fellowship with other believers, so at that point, we can be drawn away to ourselves. And when we're alone, that's when Satan really wails on us. So it's, that's the concern. When sheep are drawn away from the fold, they're in grave danger because a bunch of sheep together can kind of, you know, there's not a whole bunch of wolves showing up as much. But when they're by themselves, the wolves can go for it. We were watching a movie last night, uh, The Sons of Katie Elder. You ever seen that? 
maybe I'm dating myself, but I, yeah, the sons of Katie Elder. And at one point, the sheriff goes out to take one of the elder boys, and the bad guy in town that you don't know is the bad guy yet proves himself to be the bad guy. When, when the sheriff's by himself, he has the opportunity to kill him. He shoots him from way far away. In the back, he shoots him with his scope, and then he disappears. Had there been somebody there with him, they could have, the, of course, the movie would have ended right away, and that ruins a good movie, right? But had there been somebody with him, he, there was no machine gun. He couldn't just mow him down. There would have been a witness to go. There was a guy in the trees that shot the guy. We need witnesses around us. We need people holding us accountable. We need protection like that. But he says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by what? Temptation? Something from the outside? No, it says, by his own desires. Your desires, the the most dangerous things in your hearts. Your desires not submitted to the Holy Spirit are the thorns that will ultimately cause you to be tempted. Those desires need to be changed. So he says, endure temptation. If you endure temptation, the crown of life is offered to you. It's promised. I think it's funny because we oftentimes want the crown of life first, but the cross always comes before the crown. Jesus humbled himself, took on the form of a bond slave. He humbled himself, allowed himself to be murdered for our sins, and afterwards what came is the crown. If he doesn't go through the cross, he doesn't get exalted. And so in the same way, we being like Christ, we have to go through the cross. Sometimes that means suffering. Sometimes that means persecution. Sometimes that means trials. Sometimes that means we're tempted to sin. And yet when we have endurance, the endurance we talked about in Hebrews, when we endure, then the crown of life is promised to us. Trusting God through the trial. But love is the motivation. So God doesn't tempt to sin, nor can he be tempted. Each one's tempted by their own desires. Our desires, our lusts, can be a trap to us. These are God-given desires, by the way. If I don't have the desire to eat, I die. God placed that desire in me. And yet, if I have that desire and I just let it control everything... I'm a glutton, and I eat too much, and it can kill me. That's sin, right? Um, What about the desire for uh, marital relations? If we don't have that desire for physical intimacy with our spouse, uh, we don't multiply, and human race dies off. God called us to be fruitful and multiply, so he placed that within us. And yet that desire, not controlled by the Holy Spirit, causes what? Sin. And that sin produces children. And that, those children produce a desire. And many, we're seeing in the news, to abort those children. Because our desire for pleasure causes us to produce children we don't want. So in sin, any sin, we have to think about the long-term consequences. Because what happens is there's a hook. I have the hook there for you with the worm. Now, we're not tempted by worms. We're cre- even us that fish with them. We don't want to eat them unless you're really weird. But the worm there is to be covering the hook. 
But the worm on the hook is a trap for the fish. It's a snare. The fish is just hungry. He's just going off a reflex. Hey, look, food. Never considering the fact that there's no worms in the water. Like, what's that? And maybe there is. I don't know. I don't swim underwater a whole lot. You know, I'm not a fish. But they're tempted by it. What about crickets? I fish with crickets. Or those little nibbles you put on crappie jigs. Like, do they never think, you know, I really like those, but what are they? I've never seen one of those. Maybe that's a trap. But they don't have reason like we do. And yet some of us act like fish. We just respond to what's dangled in front of us like we're animals. Now, our schools are teaching us that we're animals through evolution. But the reality is, we're not. God's given us reason. He's given us understanding. He's given us a conscience. And for us Christians, we've been given the Holy Spirit. We can say no to sin now. We can see things for what they are. If we'll stop and think and pray for wisdom. So our desires are what kills us. What we find out is later in Genesis 39, Joseph gives us an example of temptation. Joseph is a young man. He's a servant in Potiphar's house. Everything was under his control. The one thing that he didn't give him control of was his wife. And his wife starts coming to Joseph, a young man, not married, and saying, come and lay with me. And as a young man, that is a a strong temptation. No one's around. Who's going to know? But what we find out in Genesis 39 is that how Joseph responds to this temptation comes from a deep place that no one can see on the outside. And as she continually comes to him and says, come and lie with me, he continues to say no and flee from temptation. And it says there in verse 7, it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to her, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he's committed all that he has to my hand. There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept anything back from me but you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He wasn't concerned about what his boss thought. He was concerned about sinning against God. So eventually, he gets thrown in jail because of what she did, and she lies about it. He did the right thing. He endured temptation, and God later rewards him. So, how do we change our desires? I don't know about you guys, but the first eight years of my life, there were things that completely, my Christian life, things that completely destroyed me. I tried to battle them, and I didn't try very hard, and they overran me all the time. Maybe you've got something like that. How do we endure temptation? Well, in Psalm chapter 37, King David writes about this. Psalm chapter 37, verse 1. He had a problem with evildoers. They were always battling him and they were winning. And he writes, Do not fret because of evildoers. Don't be envious of the workers of iniquity. They shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. So step one, 
Trust in the Lord and do good according to his standard. Number two, dwell in the land and feed on God's faithfulness. Feed on his word. Recount his blessings. Feed on it like it's your, it keeps you alive. Listen to testimonies of other believers. Be in fellowship with one another. Encourage each other. Feed on God's faithfulness. And then he says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Doesn't meaning that it's, it doesn't mean that he'll give you whatever you want. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will change your desires. They'll become, his desires will match up with yours. So, do you have faith that works? That's the question of James. Or do you have faith that fails? Does your relationship with Jesus Christ help you endure trials when the pressure is on? Does your relationship with Jesus provide wisdom in the midst of trials to know how to get through them? Are you going other places? Does your relationship with Jesus Christ give you power to say no to your desires instead of letting them control you? Do your desires control you or do you control them? How we respond to temptation can help us know if we know God at all. 1 John 3. First John chapter 3. It's right after James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Excuse me, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. The idea is continual, habitual, practicing, living in sin. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. So, are you having any victory, any at all, over sin? Does the love that you've been shown by God through Jesus have an effect on how you respond to trials and temptations. I said we were going to talk about Genesis, but I want you to look at the situation between Adam and Eve and the devil, Satan, the serpent. What you find is that she looked at the fruit, saw that it was good to eat, able to sustain her health-wise, but it was able also to make her wise. So God says, Get, come to me and ask for wisdom, and I will give it liberally. And Satan says, you don't have to go that way. You can cheat. You don't need God. You can get the fruit, and it will make you wise. That's the temptation. But there's a hook with that, and it was death, right? We all go to funerals nowadays because of that temptation. And so my question for you is, do you have a faith that works? Is it proving that you are actually in the sun? And uh, how's that going? Now, that doesn't mean you won't be tempted still. And it doesn't mean that you'll have battles that you'll fail. But a faith that works will be a victorious faith. 
and it will help you conquer sin and the temptation to sin. So this morning, we're going to take communion, and uh, it's going to be a few minutes longer than usual. I'm sorry. But I want you to take time, and I want you to reflect upon what we've learned this morning. Do you have a faith that works? Because if it's in the Son, then it will work. And if it's based on a love that you have of God, recognizing first and foremost that you've been loved by Him, it will help you be victorious over these things. And it will project to the world not just what you say you believe, but what you actually do. And so don't be beat down by the book of James. Be encouraged to dig deeper. If you're not there yet, then join the chorus. None of us are. But that doesn't mean that we can't continue to grow. So, Father, as we get ready to take communion, and as we open up this time to pray and to reflect upon these truths, search our hearts, thumb through the Rolodex of the desires that we have, and spotlight the things that we need to confess and to repent of. Open up the eyes of our hearts. Give us understanding and and wisdom to see where we truly are. Help us not to deceive ourselves and think that we're where we need to be. It happens. We start following you. We start to think that we've arrived, and that's what Satan would love for us to do. Okay, we're going to church every week. Now we're good. And yet, Father, you want us to grow. So, Father, would you help us to grow? Would you reveal these things? Would you give us this time to contemplate all that you did to accomplish and to fix the relationship that was broken because of sin. But also, Lord, would you help us to continue in the faith and to grow in the midst of it. In Jesus' name, amen.